Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We just had the Parsha of Shaduchim, which is the marriage between man and woman, this incredible union between heaven and earth that takes place. And... You know, the drive toward creation is unity. Things start completely unified. Before the world was created, the only thing that existed was God, right? So then everything gets sort of like broken down and scattered, and there's this great illusion of disunity. The first letter of the Torah, remember, the Torah begins with the letter Bez. Bez is the number two. So that's our introduction to reality through our perception, is the number two, the base of Breshis. So what does that number two stand for? That stands for good and evil, body and soul, heaven and earth. It goes on and on and on and on. In other words, it's all forms of duality. Again, it's the illusion that there's anything other than oneness. And so we start with ultimate unity, and then... Things break down and we've got this illusion of disunity. And then our job right now is to reveal the unity that's already there. This is an important concept because God is already here. God already fills the entire world. God is as present in this realm as he is in the highest realms. He's just more concealed. See, that's a very big thought. Let me just break that down for you because this is... This is a game changer, this this idea. God is 100% present in this realm as much as he is in the highest realms. He's just more concealed. Now the problem is, is that emotionally speaking, we experience concealment as abandonment. When we don't see God and we can't point to God and we've got problems and we don't understand how a God who is here isn't solving all of these things and everything like that, we feel as though we've been abandoned. But concealment is not abandonment. And God is already here. So our job is to reveal God's presence. That's what it is. So in other words, we start with unity. It goes to this illusion of disunity. And then the ball comes into our court to reveal the unity that's already there. Now you see this process mirrored in the Shaduchim process, in the process of man and woman getting together. Because in the heavenly realms, the Baal Shem Tov teaches, the man and woman are already together. That soul is already unified. And then it comes down into this world in different bodies, and then under the chuppah, that oneness gets revealed. So you see there's a parallel between the journey of the soul and the journey of the fixing of this world. A very strong parallel. Okay. So, there's so much to discuss, but I want to go deeper into this idea of soulmates. And I want to bring a teaching from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who of course is the author of the Zohar, which is the Kabbalistic centerpiece of the Jewish people. You already know that. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says the following, an amazing thing. We all know that people have soulmates, but 
What about the days of the week? The days of the week also have soulmates. So he brings the following teaching. Sunday's soulmate is Monday. Tuesday's soulmate is Wednesday. Thursday's soulmate is Friday. And since there's seven days of the week, that means someone's going to get left out in the cold, right? So Shabbos is left out. And Shabbos turns to God and says, who will be my soulmate? And God answers Shabbos, your soulmate is the Jewish people. Now that's an amazing thing. This is a really kind of breakthrough idea right now. Because what it tells us, it tells us a lot of things. But what I want to concentrate on right now, what it tells us is that our relationship with Shabbos is very different from our relationship with any other mitzvah. In other words, people just kind of think of, well, there's 613 commandments, and Shabbos is another one of the commandments, and so that's kind of what it is. But that's not what it is. Shabbos is completely in a different category. And halachically, according to Jewish law, I'm not going to go into all the details right now, but the keeping of Shabbos is entirely different and gives a Jew a completely different status. I was just in Johannesburg, and I was there for the Shabbos project. The Thursday night before the Shabbos, before I was there, they had 4,000 people making challah. 4,000 people were baking challah. And they, that's not a guesstimate. They know because people had to register in advance. Isn't that unbelievable? There's approximately 30,000 Jews there, and approximately one-third of them keep Shabbos. This is the highest ratio of keeping Shabbos among a population of Jews in the world. And the chief rabbi, Rabbi Goldstein, has, has pioneered all these amazing programs. So really, we have to be so grateful for him. And I don't want to, I don't want to tip any news right now, but I can tell you in Johannesburg, Rabbi Goldstein has pioneered a new program that I think is going to have a very big effect worldwide on Jewry. He just kind of revealed it in Johannesburg, and we started working with it a little bit, and it's really an amazing new idea that I think is going to have a very big impact on the Jewish people. I'm not going to go into it now. But anyway, Shabbos is our soulmate. Now, with that in mind, I want to go into a, a, a very deep idea that I haven't seen written in any book. And I'm going to try to answer a question right now, which is, how is it possible that Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, ate from the tree of knowledge? In other words, you know, the world was brand new. The world was absolutely brand new. There was a level of oneness that was revealed in the world that we haven't experienced since. Not until Mount Sinai, not until the Torah was given at Mount Sinai have we experienced this. And not since then. So with so much clarity in the world, how could they have got, gone against the word of God? How is it possible? All right, so the easy answer is the snake, right? <laughs> But we're going to go for something deeper right now. And in order to do that, I want to introduce, before we kind of just dive into that question, I want to introduce another medrash, which is phenomenal. It's so visual. 
I mean, you can just see it happening before your eyes as I'm describing it, okay? So we know that we just had the acquisition of Moris Hamach Pela, which is the cave of the patriarchs. And it's an amazing Shabbos in, in, in Israel because tens of thousands of people go to Hebron, the city where the, the cave of the patriarchs is, where Adam and Eve are buried, where Avram and Sarah are buried, where Yitzchak and Rivka are buried, where Yaakov and Leah is buried, right? And the head of Esav, by the way. One of the sort of more mind-bending pieces of information there. But that's, that's a whole topic unto itself. But anyway, everyone is buried there. Now, why there? Why there? Why did Avraham go out of his way to pick that spot? Because the Zohar teaches that Moris Hamach Pela, the cave of the patriarchs, is the entrance into the Garden of Eden. It's where heaven and earth kiss. So, so the Medrash says the following. Avraham goes, he's carrying Sarah, right? The mother of the Jewish people, one of the greatest people who's ever lived ever. He goes in to bury her. And rising out of the grave is Chava. Eve literally rises from the grave and she says, I'm so embarrassed, right? Because she listened first to the snake. She ate first. And she says, how can it be that I'm going to be buried next to this great woman, Sarah? And Abraham consoles Chava and Adam, by the way, and says, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to fix it. We're here to fix it. So you have this idea of Avraham and Sarah, and by extension, the entire Jewish people, coming to fix what Adam and Chava did. So Avraham and Sarah are coming to fix what Adam and Chava did. So the question is how and why. So the why we know, but, but the how is what I want to zero in on, or at least one dimension of the how. Okay. Now before we get into it, since we're talking about Mor Samach Pela, I want to share with you something that came to me on Shabbos, something that just kind of blew my mind a little bit, okay? There's a detail when discussing Moris Hamach the cave of the patriarchs, which seems very extra and irrelevant. Like too much information, too much detail. And it repeats this point over and over again in the, in the Torah, which is the following. That the cave was located facing Mamre. Like, why do you need to know that? We already know that it belonged to Ephron, and we already know that it was amidst the children of Heth and everything like this. But this extra, extra detail about the location of the cave, especially since we've already been, what's been revealed to us is like the highest of the highest. It's the entrance to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> what, what more in terms of geographical location do you need? And how is the fact that it's facing Mamre like adding to this discussion at all. You understand? So, so let's figure out what Mamre is all about because it very much ties into this discussion, very much. So 
This is what came to me. Mamre, by the way, is not just a location. Mamre is the name of a person, and he was one of Avraham Avinu's best friends. There's a very curious episode, which is that after Hashem commands Avraham to get his bris, Avraham goes around asking all of his friends, saying, what do you think I should do? <laughs> this is Avraham we're talking about. Avraham is asking people, do you, think, do you think I should get a bris? By the way, the end of this story is that everyone tells him no. <laughs> Except Mamre. Except Mamre. Okay, now we see Mamre is tied to saying yes to the bris, but let's just backtrack a little bit. Why was Avraham asking other people, right? That, that sounds like a good question, right? And what's the whole idea of a bris? <laughs> Got a lot of questions here. So I heard Rabbi Shimon Green say the following, which I thought was a really amazing explanation. He said that basically what Avraham Avinu was doing was he was piling up all of these no's so that he could throw them all off and make the mitzvah that he was doing even higher. In other words, he was taking on, you know, it's sort of like, you know, who wants to take me on? You know what I mean? All these people are piling up. And then he throws them all off to sanctify God's name on an even greater level. Okay. So what was their concern? What was their argument? Because these were people who Abraham Avinu respected, who he was asking. What was their argument? And a very interesting point that they made to him that is very relevant to our Jewish identity today, which is they said to him, you know what, if you're too different, no one's going to listen to you. If you go ahead and do this to yourself, you're really entering into another category. And the way people are going to perceive you is that they're not going to listen to you anymore because they're not going to be able to relate to you anymore. How many of us in our own spiritual journeys have confronted that same issue? Right? It's heavy. It's heavy. So, Abraham obviously knows that the one who created the universe, the one who created all of us, the one, is the one who gave us the Torah. So it can't be that the Torah is going to be something that derails creation. Even if that's what we think in the moment. It can't be. It can't be. As long as you do it with love and you don't use it, the mitzvahs, to, as a stick to hit other people over the head with. Which in itself gets challenging. <laughs> I know I've been guilty of that myself. You know, my favorite story illustrating this point that I always like to tell is that I, one Shabbos years ago, I had this couple over and uh, the man was Jewish, his wife was not Jewish. And they were going to wash their hands and I, you know, was just talking to my friend who was the, the man, the, the husband. And I told him, take off your ring, you know, before washing. And I was, you know, giving him different deep ideas, inspiring ideas about washing your hands before bread, what it, what it means on a deeper level, all the rest. And he sat down and he turns to his wife at the, at the table, who wasn't even Jewish, by the way, and sees that she kept her ring on 
for the washing, because I guess no one mentioned it to her. And he said to her, you kept your ring up? <laughs> and I thought to myself, he knows one thing. This guy knows one thing, and he's already using it to hit his wife over the head with. So we have to be mindful of that ourselves. You know what I mean? That, that learning is sometimes a, a painfully slow process. You know, and, and like I say, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of that. But anyway, but anyway, Mamre says to Avram Avinu, go ahead and get the bris. So now we see Mamre, wow, Mamre's on a high level. Mamre was totally on board, so they, they name a region after him. And now what's the connection now between the fact that Mora Samach Pela, the cave of the patriarchs, which is the entrance into the Garden of Eden where heaven and earth kiss, is also mentioned in the same breath in the Torah multiple times as Mamre who says, go ahead and get the bris. What is the connection there? So I want to go deeper and, and try to spell it out. Okay, what's a bris? So a bris is really, it's, it's, it's the cutting off of the orla. So remember that word orla because that's going to that's gonna be the key word in understanding all of this. And orla is a blockage. So the first thing that we have to understand is that complaint that was offered to Abraham by his other, the other people that he respected, that if you cut this piece of skin off of you, that you're going to be deforming the human anatomy. Remember, like, the Greeks, for instance, the Greeks come much later, but the Greeks were, like, way into the human anatomy. It was absolutely beautiful, and there were statues made of you know, naked people all of the time because of the beauty of the human anatomy. And the idea that you're going to go and cut off an aspect of it, like that's almost a slap in the face of God. So, so why aren't we deforming the human anatomy when we do a bris? Right? As, as people learn, as people become far and far away from, their, from the Jewish tradition in modern day, this has become a very contemporary question. People, wanna, people are asking the same question that they asked thousands of years ago. So the answer is very, very important to know because this answer contains within it the entire Jewish vision of what we're doing in this world. Okay, it's not just a small technical answer. It's a giant answer. The first thing that we have to realize is that God didn't go like this. Oh, I've divined this infinitely complex thing called the human being. Ah, oh, I forgot to take off that piece of skin. <laughs> you know something? I got a phone call, and then there was a knock at the door. And I just, ah, oh, do me a favor. Do me a solid, says God. <laughs> just finish the job, okay? Because I got distracted. Okay, so obviously that's not it. Obviously that's not it. So there's a question, and this is one of my main campaigns in life, is to get, really, honestly, I'm being very sincere right now, is to get the following thought out to as many people as I can, which is, 
a question that I, I feel as though everybody has, whether you can articulate it or not, which is, if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? This is everybody's question. Everybody has this question. And can I tell you something? There is the most beautiful, simple, straightforward answer to this, according to the Torah. And that is because the world isn't finished yet. This is absolutely a game changer. If you understand the truth of this, you're locking into the Jewish vision of the world, and you're also locking into everything about your life. As Reb Shlomo says so brilliantly, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? Do you understand? See, what people think incorrectly is that the Garden of Eden was a cosmic spa and we blew it. And it's not the case. The world wasn't finished yet. And I'll tell you the most awesome gematria in the world, okay? The fact that Nachash, which means snake, is the same gematria as Mashiach. Now, that's a mind blower because, because they're total, you can't get more opposite words in the world having the exact same gematria, which means that numerically they share the same spiritual DNA. So how could it be that the snake from the Garden of Eden and Mashiach are the same gematria? And I'll explain it to you. Because there was an unfinished quality to the world. That's the nachash. God created us to be partners with him to finish the world. That's our role in the world. The nachash represented, the snake represented those, that unfinished energy. Our job was not to listen to the nachash, to say no to it, meaning to say, to harness that energy of incompleteness, and had we harnessed that energy of incompleteness, that would have been Mashiach. That would have been the finishing of the world. Do you understand? Do you understand? Is that clear? So we get tests in our life, and the idea is to harness that energy and to elevate that energy, and then you bring more harmony and more completeness into the world. And the unique tools that God gave us to harness all those things are the mitzvot from the Torah. Okay. So now... What's a bris? A bris is everything that I just told you in one simple idea. Remember, a human being is a microcosm, a miniature of the universe. You have heaven and earth in you. Every single person has heaven and earth in them. Your body is the earth. Remember, a person is called Adam. Why is a person called Adam? Because we were made from Adama, which is the earth. That's your physical body. You are the earth. Your neshama, your soul, is a piece of God. It's a piece of heaven. So every single person is part heaven and part earth. And we're going to go deeper into this because I haven't forgotten that we started talking about how Shabbos is our soulmate. We're still on that topic, but we're going to, we're going to get back to it, okay? Why is everyone so miserable in the world? 
Every, we have more creature comforts, more wealth in the world than in the entire history of civil, civilization. So why are people so miserable? And the answer that I would like to suggest to you is because our heavens and our earths are out of whack. Everyone's heaven and earth is out of balance. And we're going to go into this more in a moment. But Shabbos is the cure. Shabbos is that thing which aligns your heaven and your earth. But we're going to go deeper into that in a moment. First, I want to finish connecting this idea of the cave of the patriarchs, the entrance to the Garden of Eden, and why we're talking about circumcision in Mamre in the same breath. Okay. So what is a bris? If you're a microcosm of the universe, God gives us this amazing mitzvah, which is to finish creation. That small snip, right? Think about the role that a man has in making a baby and the role that a woman has in making a baby. <laughs> They're a little out of whack, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> like the man's like, Done. <laughs> and the woman's like, okay, I need nine months now. I mean, it's so out of whack in terms of a man's role and a woman's role. Okay? So now with that in mind, think about it in terms of this cosmos. This cosmos, which has hundreds of billions of galaxies and stars and planets, it's so vast. God, and, and the spiritual realms, which go above... On and 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 on. So whatever our role is in terms of finishing creation, it's almost parallel to the idea of here's this human body, and God is just saying, just make a snip. <laughs> just make a snip. Right? Our job is just to finish it off. And so we have in the bris a model for the entire Jewish vision of history and our role to finish things off. Now listen to this. I'm going to tell you a teaching right now and we're going to connect everything. I'm going to tell you a teaching now from the Eretz Svi. The Eretz Svi, Rav Ari Svi Frummer, was the Rosh Hashiva of Hachmei Lublin. And he was actually the longest serving Rosh Hashiva of Hachmei Lublin. There were only two. The first one was Rabbi Meir Shapiro, the creator of the Daf Yomi. And remember, Hachmei Lublin was the most famous yeshiva in the entire world. So the Eretz Svi says the following. He says, remember, what did we call this extra piece of skin? Do you remember the word? An orla. Okay. Now, if you look at what a bris really is all about, it's way deeper than just the idea of cutting off this piece of skin on the eighth day on a little boy. It's way deeper. And it applies equally to men and women. Why? Because the Torah teaches us something very intense about the human condition, that all of us have an orla around our hearts. We all have this blockage, this barrier around our hearts, both men and women. And the Torah commands us 
that we've got to circumcise our hearts. We've got to take this barrier, this blockage off of our hearts. And do you know what happens once we do that? And by the way, it's such an important commandment that Yeheskel, the prophet Ezekiel, says later, in the name of God, if you don't do it, meaning all of us, if you don't do it, God says, I'm going to do it. So either way, we know that this blockage around our hearts is going to be removed. Now, I always like to say, and this is a perfect example of it, that Judaism believes in evolution more than Darwin. And this is a perfect example of this, because this shows you that the human species, according to Torah, is still evolving in the most amazing way. Because this critical element about our humanity, this blockage on our hearts, is going to be removed. And it's not just an an anatomical thing. Do you understand what a blockage around your heart means? It means that our minds and our hearts aren't together. Why is it so hard to put our minds and our hearts together? Why do people say that the furthest distance in the entire universe is the space between the mind and the heart? And the answer is because we have a blockage around our hearts. Do you know what it's going to mean in terms of one's perception when your heart and your mind are together? Do you know what stage the human being in terms of consciousness is going to advance to? It's going to be wild. It's going to be wild. So so we've got to take this barrier. And that's really on a deeper level what the bris is talking about. Now let me tell you what the Eretz says. Okay, The Eretz says, and this is my word, he didn't use this word, but there's an intergalactic orla. <laughs> right, again, what's an aura? orla? That's this blockage. You know, this or this, right, this, this barrier. There's an intergalactic orla that surrounds Shemayim, heaven. Do you know what that intergalactic orla is more commonly known as? Gehenim. And you know, a lot of people think, let me just give you some basic Torah geography right now, or cosmology right now. What a lot of people think is the Christian view, which is that there's hell on the bottom, earth is in the middle, and heaven is on top. But if you look at the end of Gomorrah Talmud, right, the very end of that Gomorrah, you can see it with your own eyes. It says, where is Gehenim located? And it says, above the Rakia. Above the Rakia is above the firmament. That's already up in the heavens. Which means the Jewish view is that there's earth down below, Gehenim is above it. Gehenim is translated as hell, if you don't know what Gehenim means. It's different from hell. But it's, it's, it's a place of spiritual cleansing. And then above that is Shemayim, is, above, is, is heaven. Okay, now you're ready for a mind-blowing thought. This is what the Eretz says. You ready for this? When you circumcise the orla around your heart, when you get rid of that barrier around your heart, you get rid of the barrier in front of Shemayim. That blockage separating you from heaven 
also gets removed simultaneously. That those two orlas, those two barriers are linked. You remove the, the orla, the blockage around your heart. You remove that separation between you and heaven. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. Now, someone asked me, practically speaking, how can I get rid of the orla around my heart? So I'm sure there are many answers to that, but let me give you one practical answer, right? Because we call this talk spiritual tools, so we, we need tools. Actively see the good in other people. Actively see the good in yourself. And that's the advice of Rebbe Nachman. And it's not just, it's not just see the good in yourself, or know that you're a good person and know that other people are good people. That's not what he says. He says, actively, actively seek out the good point in yourself. Actively seek out the good point in other people. In other words, it's, it's an offensive, like offense versus defense. It's, it's, you have to be proactive in looking, right? Like if you want to cut something, you don't put the knife next to the butter, and with your mind, try to <laughs> cut off a little slice. When it comes to cutting, it's an active state. If you want to cut the barrier around your heart, it's an active state. You have to take an action. And if you actively look for the good in yourself and you actively look in the, for the good in others, you're picking up that knife and you're cutting away the barrier. Do you understand? All right. Now let's go back to our topic. <laughs> our topic is the fact that Shabbos is not just a simple mitzvah. It's not just another amidst the list of mitzvahs that there are. Shabbos is your soulmate. Shabbos is your soulmate. You have a completely different relationship with Shabbos than you have with any other mitzvah. And now I want to give you my answer of why, how, it could, how it's possible that Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava could have eaten from the tree of knowledge. Now listen to this. In order to understand this, we have to understand the following, which is according to Jewish tradition, the day you get married, all of your sins are forgiven. It's called the Yom Kippur of a lifetime, the day of your wedding. In fact, the, the Shemona Esrei, the davening, right before you get married, you actually do the Yom Kippur, the Yom Kippur Shemona Esrei. All right, so this is not just a kind of a, a spiritual idea. You're actively davening a completely different prayer. No, none of the other guests at the wedding are. Just the chassan and kala, the, the, the bride and groom. So it's actively Yom Kippur. Not only that, but the Jewish tradition, unless you get married on Rosh Chodesh, right, the first of the month, it's actually a fast day for the bride and groom leading up to the, the chuppah itself. So, so it's, it's actively a Yom Kippur. Now the question is, why would all of your sins be forgiven when you get married. 
Now, I, I, I'm going to give you a, a deep answer in a moment. I'm going to give you a, a, a less deep answer. But it's, it's actually, I remember when someone told me this, I really didn't like this answer so much. But I've come to really appreciate it, honestly, which is why I want to share it with you. Every couple has problems. That's just normal. It's normal. Don't think, what's wrong with us? Why are we fighting? Why do we have problems? Okay, there are small, medium, and large problems, right? If there's medium and large problems, that's a concern. But if there's just regular disagreements and all the rest, that's normal. Okay. So one answer is that when the problems come to a couple, which they invariably come, you shouldn't say to the other person and the other person shouldn't say to you, this is because of everything bad you did before we got married. Isn't that interesting? Now, again, when I first heard that, I was like, ah, what kind of answer is that? It, was, it wasn't a very spiritual answer for me. But I've come to appreciate that, that as an answer. You know, just people being people. That's a, it's not nothing, as they say. But now I want to give you another answer, which I think is deeper even. That's deep in its own way, but maybe deeper, maybe deeper. You see, how did we start off? We said that originally man and woman are one soul, right? And by the way, there are amazing teachings that Adam and Chava were actually created as one physical being, back to back. So that's a whole subject in itself. But anyway, we're talking about on a soul level right now. Originally, there were one soul. And then they come down in two different bodies, and then they reunite under the chuppah. Okay. So you know what that means? That means before you get married, you aren't completely you yet. Which means everything that you did wrong isn't really a proper reflection of you because you're not fully you yet. Isn't that interesting? So then when you get married, what happens is, is that you become fully you. So now that you're finally fully you, you're not totally responsible. I mean, you have to take accountability. But there's forgiveness for everything that you did beforehand because you weren't fully you yet. Isn't that interesting? Now with that in mind, I want to apply it to Adam and Chava and our relationship with Shabbos. You ready for this? Shabbos, see a lot of people don't understand something about Shabbos. Shabbos is not just the seventh day of the week. And then there are all these laws surrounding the seventh day of the week. Like, relax, hold up, you know what I mean? It's like, let's make it a little bit more like the first six days of the week, where it was a little more loosey-goosey. Like, why all of a sudden all these restrictions on the seventh day of the week? And there's a very good answer for that. The answer is, because Shabbos isn't like the other six days of the week. Now let me give you a visual, which is if you have a rolled up carpet and you roll out the carpet, that's the first six days of the week. It's made out of the same fabric of time and space. Believe it or not, the last things that were created 
On the sixth day, you have man is created. And remember, the complexity of creation is going up and up and up over the six days. So all of a sudden, you have man. So you think, wow, that's like, that's the pinnacle of creation. Close, because afterwards, woman is created, which is very significant from a Torah perspective, that woman is created after man, which means that in terms of like the going up and up of the order of complexity of creation, woman is even more spiritually advanced than man. This is real. And here's a great, that's a great source of it. We know that women have more bina than men, this, this higher understanding than men. And so this is a, a reflection of that. Okay, but then we have the end of the story. So that was, so is woman the last thing that's created? No. Shabbos is the last thing that's created. Shabbos is an independent creation in time and space. It's not like the first six days of the week, right? Think of that carpet being rolled out. That's the first six days. Then you have Shabbos, which is something completely different. I heard Rabbi Shimon Green say something, and he said, I can't prove this to you. I can't prove this to you. He says, but on Shabbos, I think we go to a completely different place. In other words, it might look like where you were a moment before Shabbos started. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Okay. So now listen to this. What did we just say? We said the reason why a person's sins are forgiven before they get married is because you're not fully you yet. If human beings were created on the sixth day, do you know what that means? Shabbos hadn't been created yet. Do you understand? We weren't fully us yet. Because our soulmate, as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai teaches, that Shabbos is your soulmate, our soulmate hadn't been created yet which means we weren't fully us yet. And that's why I want to say on a very, very deep level, we were capable of making the mistake of going against God and eating from the tree of knowledge because we weren't the full aspect of who we were yet. We didn't have our partner yet in the deepest way, which is Shabbos. And now I want to answer another question that we asked earlier in the talk. How are Avraham and Sarah going to fix Adam and Chava? So I heard Rabbi Tatz say something very deep. We're all God's children. Everyone in the world, all of us are God's children. But the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people of the world have different roles. All of us have a share in the Torah. Remember, the entire world has the seven mitzvahs, b'nei noach. So all of us are partners. All, all the people of the world are partners in terms of us being children of Torah. Nonetheless, Rabbi Tatz points out the following. 
that the main mission of the non-Jewish world is to build up this world. Whereas the main mission of the Jewish people is to connect heaven and earth. In other words, the world gets built up, think of like almost like a mountain. And that little mountain tip, do you ever wonder why the Jewish people are such a small population? We've got this little fine job. Our job is to take that mountain tip, that mountain top, and to connect heaven and earth. All right, so now let's talk about the first six days of the week and the seventh day of the week. The first six days of the week, that stands for earth, doesn't it? And the seventh day of the week, that's heaven, isn't it? And what do we do on Shabbos, which is our soulmate? We connect heaven and earth together. Now, let me tell you something unbelievable. If I were to ask for a show of hands, and I were to ask you, what's the most spiritual day of the week? You'd be like, oh, come on, ask me a hard question. Everybody knows it's Shabbos. But can I ask you another question? When do you do the most eating? And everybody knows that Friday night is a special time of closeness between husband and wife. If that's the case, Shabbos is the most physical day of the week. So why does everyone think that Shabbos is the most spiritual day of the week? And I'm going to tell you the answer. Because on Shabbos we get something called the Neshami Yasera, which means an extra soul. Now a lot of people are confused what that means. An extra soul, does that mean like someone else enters into you or inhabits you? No, no, no. Let me tell you according to Rashi. Very simple explanation, but very far-reaching. Rashi says, do you know what a neshama yasera means, meaning extra soul? Do you know what that means? Your neshama, your soul expands in order to be able to accommodate and uplift the increased physicality of the day. Which means, and now we're going to answer a question that I raised earlier. Every single person is heaven and earth. So why is everyone so miserable? Because our heavens and our earths are out of whack. What does Shabbos do? It balances your heaven and your earth. Because your soul expands in order to accommodate and uplift and harmonize your physicality. And all of a sudden, Shabbos puts you in balance again. And this whole idea is what I was trying to mirror in terms of the entrance to the Garden of Eden of Moris HaMach Pela. Because when you remove those barriers, those orlas, which is what Mamre is talking about, why we're mentioning Mamre in the same breath as, as Moris HaMach Pela, when you remove that barrier in your heart, you remove any separation between heaven and earth, which the that cave is the entrance into, right? Into the Garden of Eden where heaven and earth kiss. And on Shabbos, that's what happens. Your heaven and your earth kiss. So I'm just going to wrap it up by telling you that Shabbos is the cure for the human condition. Shabbos is your soulmate. And it's appropriate to long for Shabbos. Shabbos. 
and to work for Shabbos during the entirety of the week. You know, Reb Shlomo was famous for wishing people good Shabbos seven days a week. And during the week, they would ask him, why are you wishing us good Shabbos? It's not Shabbos. And he would answer, it's Shabbos Cholamoyed. <laughs> so basically, good Shabbos. What follows now are some questions and answers. I think it does, actually. Does it really? I, from my limited understanding, unless you can show me a source that says otherwise. Okay, so if they wind up together, that's a soulmate. I think so. What happens to these people that are single, divorced, widowed? I mean, what happens to these So, first of all, we have an idea of a zivig sheni, which means that there's another soulmate out there, even if a person's been divorced. So everyone should take strength from the fact that your soulmate's out there. People's soulmates are out there, whether it's their first marriage or not. The concept of soulmate is still very much relevant to them. And by the way, I just want to say something very practical on that, on that level. Those of you who know me, I, I don't really talk about myself in this way, but for the purposes of the point I want to make, I'm going to talk about myself in this way. I'm a very, very spiritual person. So if that's the case, I always thought, that when I, because I looked for my wife for a period of years, it was, it was a long struggle for me. I know it's been challenging for other people, and more so, but for me, I experienced it as very challenging. And I always thought to myself that I will recognize her when I meet her. And I 100% did not recognize her when I met her. And I'm, I'm saying that to the other spiritual people out there to think if it's true for me, it's probably, there's a good chance that it's true for you as well. And that you have to be like really, I don't know what the word is, more patient, more humble, whatever the proper word is. That, that you should know that you're not necessarily going to know when you see the person. And I, I just want to, as long as I'm giving a little bit of advice, let me just give a little bit more advice, okay? Because I know the, that this is a big challenge for people as you're bringing it up. And I experienced it in a very real way in my own life. So I, I, I know this is true. When I was dating, there wasn't online dating. Okay? So that might seem like I'm a dinosaur, but maybe I am. Maybe I am. But the world has changed, you know, very, very, you know, significantly over the last years. And on the one hand, like I think about, wow, online dating, and it seems to me like it's amazing because before I just had like the limited number of people in my neighborhood. And now all of a sudden you've got choices in Australia or Johannesburg or England or Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or New York. And you don't have to leave your desk. This is incredible. This is amazing. So, but on the other hand, I also know that this poses a lot of challenges for people because they're completely overwhelmed. But the point I want to make is actually different from that, which is, and I always like to quote Vladimir Nabokov, the novelist, who is, you know, a very sophisticated writer. 
And he wrote to a critic one time these words, which always kind of resonate with me, which is, please don't understand me too quickly. Right? Please don't understand me too quickly. And I feel as though what offsets all of this increased opportunity that people have is people look at a profile and go, no, 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 no. All of a sudden, you're like the greatest genius of like, you know, psychology and human nature. You're like the greatest detective that ever lived. All you have to do is glance at a few words about a person and you've read their soul and know everything about them. I mean, who are you? I'm sorry, but who are you? Not only that, but you don't like their haircut? They'll get another haircut. You don't like their frames? That's literally fixed in 10 minutes at Warby Parker. You don't like their clothes? Take them to Banana I mean, the idea that you can be dismissing your life partner, not only that, but some pictures are actually better looking than the person is in person. But more interestingly, some pictures are worse looking than the person is in person. So, you know, like, my, my father used to love this joke. My father was a psychologist. And my father would tell the, this joke, which is, you know, back in the day, back in the day they would, you know, if you wanted to buy a chicken, you would, you would go and you would buy a live chicken in the market. Not, not so long ago, by the way. And so this woman is going into the market and she's, she's holding up this chicken and she's separating the feathers and she's putting her eye like right next to everything and she's sniffing it and this and that. And the, the, the owner of the market comes up to her and says, lady, could you pass such a test? So, you know, we have to have a little bit of Rachmanis when we look at another person's profile. So anyway, it is challenging. It is challenging. But there will, be, there will be people that will never get married. And there's a significant amount today and growing that will never get married. So in, you know, in terms of how do they live, that's an incomplete, what you're saying. Is well, everyone has Shabbos. Everyone has Shabbos, which on the deepest level is your soulmate. And not only that, but people have very significant relationships and community and everything like that. So, so you know, from an idealized Torah standpoint, we do have this concept of your other half. But let's not take it too far. Meaning to say that chas v'shalom, God forbid, that doesn't suggest that a person who isn't living in that state is somehow deeply flawed. Because I think that that would be unfair for a person to look at themselves or for other people to look at that person. You know? I mean, how many married people are totally flawed and broken? So, you know what I mean? It's not like it's the cure-all, right? It's, it's a step and it's important. And, and, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it, certainly. But, but let's, you know, let's... let's Keep everything in context. That's good, because I yeah. think that we're looking at people in that way. Well, so that's, that's you know, that's, that's up to the individual, how they choose to use their eyes. But what I'm saying is, is that it's, you know, it's, it's like 
There are certain mitzvahs, and I don't want to get political and, and, and start naming them, but there are certain mitzvahs of the 613 that people get like really out of whack about. But can I ask you something? Are you doing all 613 mitzvahs? Right? So, so let's, we got to be like a little bit balanced and a little bit loving and cool at the same time. So I'm just understanding that as a general question about shadchans, which is, you know, a fancy word for matchmaker. And I, I definitely recommend it. You know, I think people should try everything. I think people should try meeting pers- people in, in person. I think people should try going online, for sure. I think people should absolutely take advantage of matchmakers in the community and, and outside of the community that are recommended. There, there's no question about it, because why not? Why not? I mean, why not? I had, yeah, I had an insane experience with the Shafkin which I'm not going to go into, but it was really like the stuff of like an indie horror film. But, but, but anyway, I, I will spare you that long and crazy story. But, 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 but I absolutely recommend it. I absolutely recommend it. Okay, we're going to take a question from, from here. No, in the back, yeah. Me? Yeah. Hi, I'm Debbie. Hi, Debbie. Okay, great. That, that, that's, that's a great, that, that is a great question. What is a soulmate, practically speaking? And, uh, you know, in the Torah, it says that, that Hashem made Chava, Eve, like his partner against him. <laughs> it uses this word, kinegdo, which is this really, like, very deep idea, because it's sort of like, what does that mean? Is his partner, which which suggests helping him, against him, and so the Ishmitzer says on a very deep level that a lot of times challenge will actually benefit you, and that you'll rise to a higher level. Like for instance, you know we have a concept of the business in the business world of a yes man. What's a yes man? That means whatever you suggest is the greatest idea ever because that person wants to keep their job, right? So you know that that's not a formula for success. A yes man is not a formula for success. So you you need someone who's going to honestly tell you like where you're at, not to hurt your feelings, not to be hypercritical, but to up your game. So so that's how the Ishbitzer reconciles this idea a helpmate against you, that that opposition actually will up your game if it's coming from the right place. Now, the classic understanding of that is from the Talmud, which says that if the man merits, she'll be a helpmate. If he doesn't merit, you're going to fight like cats and dogs. Okay? So, but I think that you're raising actually another point, which is that Anytime you go into a situation, you have to have the proper expectations. You know, expectations are one of the keys to happiness in life. I mean, I'll give you an example that I think you can all relate to, okay? Which is, someone tells you, this movie is the greatest movie in the world. Oh my God, it's so good. And then you go to the movie, 
and your expectations are so high, you leave the movie not liking it. Now, the crazy thing is, had you gone to that movie when it first came out and no one said anything to you about it, you would have loved that movie. So the exact same movie that you were disappointed by and didn't like, you yourself would have been telling other people, you got to go and see this movie. So how do we solve that riddle? And the answer is, it's all about expectations. Expectations is not just about movies or restaurants. It's about friends. And it's also about marriage partners and life partners, right? You know, I really am so touched and moved by the derech, the path of Kutsk. Kutsk is really about, it's really about seeking the truth, but there are many aspects of that. And I saw, it was actually Avram Yeshua Heschel, the, the, the later one, you know, described him as existential, his approach as existential, meaning that on some very deep level, all that really exists is you and God. For each one of us, on the deepest level, there's basically just you and God. And that's not, God forbid, coming to spell out a selfish philosophy, right? It's all about me. That's not what it's saying at all. It's just saying that all you know ultimately is what's between your ears, right? And in your heart. And it's you and God. And so if that's the case, you can't really look to another person to fix you. You have to take responsibility for yourself. You have to fix yourself. And if you go into a marriage thinking that your partner is going to fix you and is going to be the answer to everything, then you are creating a huge pit to fall into at the very beginning of your marriage. Right? So I'll tell you something personal, and maybe we'll just stop here. I, I was told by someone, a, a rabbi, words that had a tremendous effect on me before I got married. He, he kind of took me aside, and he said, the entire success of your marriage is completely on you. And I was like, I took those words very seriously and very, very much to heart. And anytime there was an issue going into that, that would come up, I remembered his words and I said to myself, I have to fix it. And it could be that someone told my wife the same thing, by the way. I don't know if they did. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but it doesn't matter. Each person who goes into the marriage has to say that it's on me to fix, to fix the marriage and it's not on them to fix me. And if you go into it that way, I think that you're really priming yourself for success. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.